الجزيرة بودكاست Migration, immigration, nationality. They're complicated issues. Governments struggle with them. Families struggle with them. And over the decades, football's been struggling with them too. There are still, I know in Ghana, people crossing their fingers, hoping that players like Callum Hudson-Odoi or Eddie Nketiah will finally make the switch from England to Ghana. Just days away from the start of the 2022 World Cup in Qatar, Ghanaian fans are hoping to add a few more players to their team. These are players that played for clubs like Chelsea and Arsenal, some of the biggest clubs in the world, and that could still provide a plus for the Ghanaian national team. So this is still happening at the very last minute. Could there be more last-minute nationality change-ups? Will they change the course of the World Cup? And what is driving these players and others around the world to make the switch? I'm Hala Mahiuddin, and this is The Take. Meher Mazahi's been busy recently, tallying a list of last-minute World Cup-related nationality change-ups. We had these players switch to African national teams. Brian Mbuemo, George Kevin Nkudu, Olivia Nchan, Iñaki Williams... Meher goes on to list more than 10 players who changed nationalities in the past few months. He reports on football in Africa for Al Jazeera and other outlets. And watching where players start and where they end up is part of the job. What you have to understand is that the sports eligibility laws when it comes to nationality has been something that's really been changing and shifting over the last 20 years. Like these players, where he's from is also complicated. Moved to Algeria at the age of 25. Meher's also Canadian. He grew up there. Algeria hasn't made it, so uh, it's just been really cool to see Canada make it. I'm a pan-Africanist at heart, but I'm going to go for the five African teams. Dual nationality is not just complicated in football, it's complicated in life. We'll also hear from Jay Harris. He's in London and writes for the sports site The Athletic. I was born in the United Kingdom, but my dad's side of the family are from Barbados. Also found out a few years ago that my grandma's side can be traced back to Ghana. So I've had my hopes pinned on England and Ghana getting revenge on Uruguay. My name is Luis Vidal. I'm a sports writer for The18.com, a soccer website based on Colorado. I write in English and Spanish. Luis is Chilean by birth, but lives in Boston now. So even for those covering the sports, nationality can be tricky. But to better understand what's happening, it's probably helpful to go back to Meher and Africa, where FIFA's latest rules about nationality got their start. What happened is African nations lobbied FIFA on three occasions, 2004, 2009, and most recently in 2017, to get eligibility rules changed so that they could recruit a lot of players from the diaspora. And particularly from Europe. Meher describes the European teams as superpowers. They've won more than half of the World Cups. There were these great African players born in France or Spain or England, and they would play for those youth national teams. But then they weren't quite good enough to play for those superpowers of world football at World Cups. But they were still good enough to make a real impact with the African national teams. And Maher remembers one particular player who literally changed the game. He was born in Spain 
but his parents were from Morocco. His name is Munir al-Haddadi. Highly touted youngster, came up through the ranks at FC Barcelona, one of the most famous teams in the world. And at the age of 17, 18, they wanted to select him to play for the Moroccan national team. Spain comes in and calls him up. They know Morocco is interested. So Spain will say, come play for the Spanish national team to block his eligibility. Because once he plays for the Spanish senior team, that's it. At that time, according to FIFA rules, once you play for one national team or federation, there is no path to playing for any other country, including Morocco, again. He would have been blocked for the rest of his life. And that's what happened. Because he played for Spain in 2014, he was stuck playing for Spain. So Morocco's frustrated with that. Particularly because they just qualified for the World Cup. This was 2018, and it was the first time Morocco had made it this far in decades. So they had high hopes and thought Munir could help. Munir's a good player, a lot better than you or me. But according to Maher, he wasn't at the very top. He's in that position of limbo where not good enough for Europe, but good enough for Morocco to make a difference. So the Moroccan Federation, they petitioned FIFA and they said, please, let's change the law. Let's not make it if the player played once for the senior national team, he's automatically tied to that team for the rest of his life. Let's make it three matches. Because one match, they should be able to see if they like the other setup. And so it took two, three years to be approved, but FIFA finally agreed. And in 2020, FIFA made their last change to the nationality rules. Morocco was spearheading that change. And then Munir plays for the Moroccan national team. As Morocco go forward, Munir. Munir with a shot! Corner pocket from Munir El Adadi. His first goal for his country. Happy end to the story. The deadlock is broken in Rabat. A happy ending for Morocco, at least. And Europe went along with it. Maher says, because the players Africa usually taps, aren't the very top of the top. But European national teams can still put up a fight if there's a player they really want. European nations have been known to do that. If they know an African team is interested, they might step in and call the player up just to block them. And then they'll know in the future if they actually want to use that player or not. What some European teams can get frustrated about is they're going to say, we've invested so much you know, in our academies, this player is educated in our country, speaks the language, often speak better Spanish than Arabic, and they'll feel like we've wasted all these resources and now he's going to go play for Morocco. So you can understand how Spain or France would be quite frustrated at times. And there is a longer story here too. In the 1970s and 80s, the dynamic was different. Not as many African players were playing in Europe. Actually, a lot of African governments, they had socialist tendencies and they were, could be a little bit hardline. And what they would do is they would prohibit players from leaving the country to play in Europe until they were 28 years old. That was seen as an age where perhaps they're past their prime and they can go make some money abroad in Europe. But really, since the 90s and that explosion of the commodification of world football, the Sky Sports deal with the Premier League and the money that's been injected into European football, it's almost impossible to hold on to players on the continent now. Sky had all the football rights, and that's what drove their subscriber growth. The Premier League clubs have unanimously agreed to a three-year renewal of the current UK broadcasting rights deal, which will take them up until 2025. Now, this is subject to... If they're good enough to play Champions League football in Europe, they're going to go to Europe to make the money, but also to play at a high level. I mean, if they want to keep progressing and getting better, they're going to want to play in those matches. And I don't think anybody holds that against them. 
And so in the last two or three World Cups, Meher says, African countries have been going on these recruiting missions to Europe with one goal. Grab as many players as they can. So that's what I've been keeping a track of. And that's how Meher came up with his list. Each of the players has their own story, he says. For some, it's as easy as saying, "Okay, I want to play for you and I'll show up. For others, they've been tracking them for years and years on end. And some of these African teams have gotten quite sophisticated in their recruiting process. Some of these federations have full-time scouts or they'll have a designated person within the federation whose sole purpose is to find these players and to recruit them. Federations in Africa, they fall under the umbrella of the Ministry of Sport, which is, of course, part of the federal government budget. And so these federations will have millions and millions of dollars at their disposal at times. Some countries, I know that federations have sponsoring deals with, let's say, a mobile telecom company. It's easy to get cynical about all of this. But Meher says, despite the money and the power these recruiters have, the message comes down to one thing. Your family is going to be so proud of you representing your country. It's nothing like you've ever experienced before. And they will try to tug on the heartstrings. And football, despite its increased commodification, I think that still is the core message. But then there's the question about what happens once these players arrive in their new home. Iñaki Williams is playing for Atletico Balbao. He didn't grow up in Ghana. Didi Dramani is an assistant coach for Ghana's national team, the Black Stars. Here's Iñaki Williams. Iñaki. And when Iñaki came to Ghana, Dramani was impressed. I listened to his interviews and he tried to even speak the Ghanaian languages. And then when I met him, I greeted him in Ghanaian and he responds in Ghanaian. So these are small details. They are small things, but very huge. Enoch Machingo wishes more players had that attitude. He's a sports writer from Zimbabwe. There has been circumstances when African teams have been trying to get uh, European-born players and it has taken quite a long time to convince some of them. I think when it reached to a point whereby somebody has to think twice, that search has to stop there and there. Right now, there are only five African teams in the World Cup and 13 European teams. And if these players don't want to play in Africa, they need to change the rules in a different way, he says. We need to have more African teams first in the World Cup to attract these kind of players who want to play for their countries of origin. But do Latin American and Caribbean countries, teams and players feel the same way? That's after the break. Hello, I'm Charles Dance, your narrator for Hindsight, an original podcast by Al Jazeera. In season four, we meet the spark of the civil rights movement in the United States. Rosa Parks took a stand by sitting down. But that's not all she did. Hindsight from Al Jazeera, wherever you get your podcasts. In London, Jay Harris writes for the sports site The Athletic. It's just something that's always intrigued me, how footballers come to a decision about who they should represent. Are there any nationalities or countries which tend to see this more than others, players switching nationalities or leaving their country to play for another one. Yeah, England, again, is another obvious example. You only need to look at England's potential squad ahead of the World Cup to see how diverse it is and the influence from so many different countries. Maybe two of the most obvious ones are Declan Rice and Jack Grealish. They had represented Republic of Ireland 
And then obviously switch to England. You've got Raheem Sterling, who was born in Jamaica and now plays for England. There's obviously large pockets of Afro-Caribbean communities across the UK. Any country that's got a lot of immigrant communities, I think it's a fairly common phenomenon. Why do you think this happens? Nationality obviously strikes at the heart of personal identity. And without getting too philosophical, that's something that changes throughout a person's life. Mm. So, for example, spoke to one player, Gavin Hoyt. Gavin Hoyt in an advanced position, picks up the rebound and slots it home. So that's four. He played for England at the Under-17 World Cup. This is way back in 2007. England and Trinidad and Tobago both qualified. And Trinidad and Tobago approached him. And he said he felt he almost didn't deserve to represent Trinidad and Tobago at that point in his life. Hmm. He'd never been over there. He was born and raised in England. He grew up dreaming of playing for England at Wembley. He was playing for Arsenal at the time. He just felt like it's not right for me to go and take someone else's place. But then obviously, as he's grown up and maybe his cultural connection to his country's become even stronger and he didn't get the opportunity to play for England. He's then revisited that and he switched his mind. And Gavin Hoyt had never been to Trinidad before and he was very aware of that. And he said, I was a little bit concerned that the players would look at me as if I was a foreigner, someone who was born and raised in England, spoke in a different way, dressed in a different way, behaved in a different way, was coming into the squad. And he said that they just all treated me amazingly. Is there something similar in football? Like if, you know, footballers think, well, I can't make the grade for the England team. Is that a factor at all or not? Yeah, I think it's a fair thing to say. If you kind of break it down, the last Caribbean team, for example, to qualify for a World Cup was Trinidad and Tobago in 2006. The kind of infrastructure and the organisation for those countries is nowhere near the same level as a, a France, an England, a Germany, a Spain. So as a professional ambitious footballer I've then got to say well do I play for the country that I've got a closer connection to although I'm probably never going to play at the pinnacle of, or do I kind of switch eligibility to England. It's a difficult calculation to make and I know there have been some complaints from African and Caribbean players about fair treatments in Europe. Is that something that encourages them to leave Europe or the UK to play for teams elsewhere? You would imagine so. I can't think of any specific example where players come out and very publicly spoken about feeling maybe undervalued by one association and switching to another. But I think what it comes down to is kind of feeling comfortable and feeling like you can be yourself. Yeah. You know, I was born in the UK. My father was Lebanese. It is really interesting, the sort of idea of where are you from? Where does your allegiance lie? If you feel very aligned with English culture, maybe that's where you stay. Whereas I've got lots of friends. One of my best friends is from Cameroon. Even though he was born and raised in England, he speaks French when he's at home, mm. the language of Cameroon. So I'm sure he does feel far more attached to Cameroon than he does to England. So he might feel like this is a far better representation of who I am as a person and, and my cultural identity. I'd rather play for Cameroon. It just depends on each individual's circumstances. We've named a number of players who have dual nationalities and have played for different countries, but in some ways, we've just scratched the surface. Lionel Messi, arguably the best in the game, plays for Argentina, his home country. But he also has citizenship in Spain. The US team has a number of players with dual nationalities. And as Meher, who we first heard from, reminds us, the host country, Qatar, is really small. The 222 FIFA World Cup is Qatar. Their native population 
is a fraction of the country's actual population and their team has players who hail from a variety of different countries. They have players that are from Sudan, they have players from Algeria, they have players from Iraq. They've been playing for the Qatari national team for more than 10 years now. But it, it becomes interesting and from an identity standpoint, do Qatari supporters feel like these players really represent them? Are they going to be proud of their successes? And now, even days ahead of the World Cup's November 20th start date, questions of nationality are still being decided, with the potential to change the entire lineup. And sports blogger Luis Vidal says this is a big issue. So Byron Castillo, according to official paper, uh, he's Ecuadorian citizen, born in a town called Playas. An Ecuadorian citizen playing for Ecuador in the World Cup. Simple enough. However, Chile claims that his documents were forged as he is in reality a Colombian citizen born in a town called Tumaco. Chile's FA claims that Ecuador right-back Byron Castillo shouldn't have played in eight World Cup qualifiers because he's actually Colombian. And following that logic, since he's not an Ecuadorian citizen, again, according to Chile, he shouldn't have been eligible to play for Ecuador. And why is Chile so interested in this? Because if Byron Castillo is Colombian, that could give Chile a chance at the World Cup with just days before the opening match. That would mean that Chile would take Ecuador's place at the World Cup. So it's days before the opening game between Ecuador and Qatar. The court acknowledges that Castillo's passport contained false information, but maintains that the footballer was eligible to play in the World Cup qualifying preliminary phase. Ecuador was sanctioned for the case of the player Byron Castillo, but will be able to play in the World Cup in Qatar. And Luis admits the Castillo case is pretty rare, but when it comes to migration and football, the system is far from perfect. It could be better. There used to be like a more fair thing between South America and Europe, but most of the talent went to Europe and started to be a little more difficult for South America to catch up. A lot of African players start to play for national teams in Europe too. One idea, he says, is opening up the World Cup to more African, Asian and South American teams. The other is to recognise that immigration happens. It's part of the world we live in today. We live in a society where immigration is a normal thing to do, way for looking for opportunities. But I don't know how that could be transmitted in a legal way or in a way that let everybody happy. Jay Harris agrees. Life is complex, but in sports, you still have to pick sides. In football, you're either one or the other, whereas the reality in real life, we're all just a kind of perfect blend of all the different places and countries that we come from. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Amy Walters, with Ashish Malhotra, Nagin Oliai, Alexandra Locke, Chloe K. Lee, Ruby Zaman, and me, Halamohiadeen. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan, and our engagement producers are Aya Al-Malek and Adam Abugad. Our head of audio is Ney Alvarez. 
You can read Maher and Enoch's stories on aljazeera.com. Jay's story on Caribbean footballers heading back to the Caribbean is on theathletic.com. And the soccer blog Louise writes for is the18.com. We'll be back on Monday.